As a sales manager, you are judged by the performance of your team and you're praised when they do well. But one thing that you've not been able to figure out is how to get everyone on your team consistently hitting quota every single month. On the Snack Size Sales Podcast, we discuss the science of selling STEM. Sales leadership in the science, technology, engineering, and manufacturing fields is difficult. You will learn from sales managers just like you that will give you actionable insights and tips on how to develop as a leader and achieve your revenue targets every single month. So pop your headphones in and get ready to listen to my guests today. They will give you information and inspiration to ensure that you have actionable insights that you can put into place today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Science of Selling STEM. Today, I am so delighted to be interviewing Todd Capone from Sales Melon. How are you, Todd? I am fantastic and can't wait to dig in with you. Awesome. Let me tell you guys just a little bit more about Todd. He is the author of a three-time Best Book Award winning and international bestseller, The Transparency Sale, and a speaker workshop leader as the principal of Sales Melon. He is a multi-time C-level sales leader, behavioral science, and sales history nerd. He's guided two companies to successful exits. His next book, The Transparency Sales Leader, is planned for the spring of 2022. Behavioral science and sales history, like, I feel like I am in for such a treat. We're going to really, really be digging in because I'm all about behavior. So how did you start your career and how did you become this amazing three-time award-winning best-selling author? Gosh, there's a lot, but I'll tell you this. My dad was always a sales guy, right? Like, grew up in it always came home with a smile on his face. I knew to a certain extent that that's what I wanted to do. I was like, I consider myself like a B, B minus sales rep when I was in sales, right? Like I wasn't awesome. I had a couple of great years, but I knew that my calling was something bigger, right? Leading and teaching. I just love that. And you can ask me all day long. I don't know where my nerdery for behavioral science started, but I just always thought that like, how our brains engage and prioritize and decide and buy was interesting. I put the two together. I moved up into sales leadership, you know, had a blast doing it, had some huge successes. And then we can talk about this story here in a minute, but there was a research study that happened while I was in my last role and it changed my life like could only happen to a nerd where I quit my job and I wrote a book all over a consumer research study that triggered this whole thing. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to dig into it. So yeah, that led me to writing a book that I thought might suck because I'd never written a book before, but it's taken on a life of its own. And now I've built a whole uh, company around it and uh, replaced most of my income all with a lot less Advil, which is nice. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's where I am today. So you said something that is so important. And one thing that you said, and I think that this is a very hotly debated topic, is that you were a B plus, B minus salesperson, but you were a really good sales leader. So talk to me about that. Talk to me about you being, you know, an okay, average, mediocre salesperson, but you said, I'm going to be a sales manager and how you were able to really lead those reps. Yeah, I mean, what had happened I was bouncing around. So after 2000 hit and it turned out Y2K for any of you that are old enough to remember that, 
like it didn't cause planes to fall out of the sky and bombs to go off, right? Like it turned out to be nothing. But all of a sudden the internet bubble burst in March of 2000 and everybody went scurrying for cover. Like the lights turned on, everybody's scurrying for cover. And so I was bouncing around from job to job and I was miserable. Like I was just like, what am I doing? And for whatever reason on my sales team, I was always the person that was like seeing differently about how we should be doing things. And I had leaders that didn't agree. So I ended up in 2003, I sold everything I had and I bought a sales training franchise. It didn't go so well, but it allowed me to learn. Like I got certified in leading workshops and I got to be a nerd for all of this stuff and work with like 50 different sales organizations to see what works and what doesn't. And then when I popped out later back into the tech world, I moved up really, really quickly because I kind of had a, a different perspective than most people did. And so that's what really kind of kicked things off is looking at this foundationally plus the science together kind of made a magic combination. Ah, so you betted on yourself. You said, you know what? I'm going to sell my whole life and um, I'm going to buy this franchise. And you, like you said, it didn't go that well. And I think sometimes what people don't realize is things don't always go as expected, right? Your first business, your first job, your first career, it doesn't always happen as you expect, but you learn so much. You learn the fundamentals of the how, the why, the what, right? And then you took that knowledge to really propel your career. So tell me, when you went from, okay, I'm a franchise owner. Okay, now I'm a salesperson going all the way to sales leader. How were those first few years as a, a brand new sales leader? Well, that's the thing. So you mentioned in my bio that I'm writing a second book now called The Transparent Sales Leader. And that was, so I came out of the franchise world. I got recruited to run sales operations for a, one of the big VC funded tech companies in the Valley. I live in Chicago, but I was commuting out there. And um, I was brought in to help them get all the fundamentals right. Create the structures, the processes, do all that. It was called sales train, like sales enablement was sales training back then. So I got into it. I'll tell you one little side story. Day two on the job, it was our sales kickoff. Uh, so I came for sales kickoff was day one, day two. We have our meetings. We're going to dinner and my CEO is like, hey, Todd, you want to jump in with me? I'm like, sure. So I get in the car with him and he like starts interrogating me about my career and what I want to do. And I told him, I was like, you know, Michael, I'm part of why I took this is because I have my sights set on wanting to run a tech sales organization at some point. And so Tom, the guy that hired me, I want to learn from him. I want to see how he does it. I want to see how we grow. Fast forward about a year, they fired Tom, and I get the call from Michael, my CEO, saying, are you ready? We think you are. And I'm like, yeah, let's go, right? Like all excited. But to your question, the reality hits you that I've gotten through my sales career with a process, with a structure. I'm in sales leadership, and I immediately, within 24 hours, felt like a dog chasing a car down the street, <laughs> never knowing which direction the car's going. Sometimes you catch up. It's like, you know... Jesse's having trouble and is thinking about quitting. That deal's on the ropes. I got a forecast to do. I got a board meeting to go to. Like every day was chasing. And so I felt like <laughs> I needed a structure. I needed a process. And so I created one. And that served me incredibly well is just a simple structure. I called it the five F's of building revenue capacity, but I used it to plan, strategize, communicate up, down, left, right. When the bullets start flying, I would always have that to fall back on. And that's like that first company, we were able to turn it around. We grew 400% year over year. 
I won one of those Stevie Awards, the American Business Award for uh, VP of Worldwide Sales of the Year within two years. And then we sold the business to SAP at a nice little multiple. And then I went on and did it again. But I think for everybody, we are like dogs chasing the car down the street and we need structure, we need process. And it's not that hard to find if you look around. Mm. You set your intentions and day two of your job, you're like, this is what I'm going to do. Like uh, pretty much you told the CEO, I'm going to have my boss's job and I'm going to do it better than he is. <laughs> and the CEO remembered that. Yeah, I was never <laughs> like that because I love Tom, the guy that brought me in. I would have run through brick walls for him forever. Like I was not expecting that call. Like no way. As a matter of fact, he started it by saying, I want to make sure you're all right because I know you love Tom. Right. And I was mm. like, yeah, but tell me what's next. Like, what's going on? And he's like, well, we think you're ready. Like, holy crap, really? So yeah, that was, so it was not like, I'm not that kind of like, I'm coming for you, right? It was like, hey, I know what I want. I know where I want to go. And this period here with this company is my investment in helping me get there. And you know, the thing is, it's if you would have never said anything, you would have never gotten the call, Probably right? Not. And right. so even when we're trying to climb the ladder or we're trying to do something different within our career or for ourselves, you have to let people know. Don't keep it to yourself. Tell people, this is what I want for my career. And hey, this is what I want to do. And you know, some people will come to an interview and they'll be like, I want your job. <laughs> and you're like, okay, great. I want to work myself out of a job, right? Exactly. Yes, that's it. It's like going, you know, punching up your GPS and telling them, hey, I want to go somewhere, but I never tell them where. They're not going to help yes. you very much, right? And like your leader <laughs> has got to be the same way. It's just like, hey, here's where I want to go. I don't expect to get it in the next two years. So patience, but I just want you to have that lens in the way that you think about me and the way you coach me. And when you see opportunities for me to potentially grow so I can get closer to that, if you're not aware of them, you have no way to let me know that they're there, right? And that's Absolutely. that's always, so I think for with everybody, everybody, like if you know where you're going, let everybody know who could potentially help you, not with the intention of I'm coming for you, but with the intention of if you see those opportunities, hopefully you'll think of me. Absolutely. So you said you had this framework that I think you said the five F's that really yeah. helped you build a process. Talk to us about those five F's. Yeah, I'll rattle them off for you. What I realized very quickly is that the role of sales leader is primarily five responsibilities. They all happen to start with the letter F, which is nice. And it almost follows a process. And once I identified those and wrote them down and thought about them, like I had them on a little, you know, sticky on my monitor all the time, that I wouldn't get stuck going down these silos. And the, the five Fs simply, our first responsibility initially and ongoing is focus, which is you've got to focus your organization on the right companies in the right places. So the right firmographics, the right demographics, the right prerequisites, like focus, you've got to hone that, right? You wouldn't go hunting and just blast off your shotgun in the woods. Like you've got to focus, right? And so one of my mantras was always no science projects, right? Like we know what we're good at. And within that, we know where we're gonna focus and that's where we get momentum and confidence. So you establish and maintain focus. The second F, is you've got to then build a field, the field to support that focus, the right people in the right places with the right experiences, with the right tools and the right resources and the right comp and all that. The field is your second F. Once you've built that field to support your focus, right? Not the other way around. You then have to make sure that you identify and grow the fundamentals. So make sure that that field is getting the right things right consistently. Messaging, positioning, prospecting, presenting, negotiating, handoffs, that whole process. Once we've done that, our fourth F is 
you've got to be able to predict the future through a forecast, right? Sales leaders got a responsibility to forecast the metrics, the KPIs to be proactive. And then your fifth F, which is arguably the most important, especially now, is fun, which is you've got a responsibility to build a culture where your team wants to come, wants to stay, wants to run through a brick wall for you, and wants to tell all their friends. And once you've got those five, that becomes literally, it was my means for all my one-on-ones up and down. It became my means for all hands meetings, board meetings, all that communication, all my strategy and planning. And then there was one time where we had missed a number right after a fundraise. I was brought out to the Valley, put in a room with a sales expert that was there to beat the crap out of me for three and a half hours. And I crushed it, not because I was any smarter, but because I had structure. And I was able to take them through, here's the way that I think about it, right? Let's go through these five Fs and we'll spend the next three and a half hours. And hopefully you can coach me to optimize this. And this guy at the end of the three and a half hours, instead of me leaving crying, was like, wow, you're world-class. And I was like, well, thank you. That's awesome, right? It meant the world to me. And But I think that without the structure, I would have been just flowing around for three and a half hours and he would have destroyed me. Mm. So as you were going through your five Fs, I, for some reason I was envisioning a football field. And so like, you're talking about focus and I'm like, okay, that's the end zone. Okay, then you're talking about the field. I'm like, okay, that's football field. Then you're talking about fundamentals. I'm like, okay, that's practicing. And so as you're going through them, I had this visual, right? And thinking about, and a lot of times, a lot of people use sports analogies, right? And so thinking about like, really your job as a sales leader, as a sales manager is to be the coach, right? Mm-hmm. You have to run point. And so you having your five Fs, you have the game plan in your head, you know all the plays, and you have to make sure that you're bringing your team along, but you also have to make sure that you're letting your leadership know, hey, this is the game plan. These are the plays. This is what we have in order. And I think so many times, sales managers, they focus on the tactical bits and pieces, and they're not thinking about, I call it managing up, right? So you going in that room with an expert who they paid how many thousands of dollars to come whip you into shape. (laughs) It's like, I got it. Exactly. That's exactly it. And I think with all of these pieces too, you know, if you really dig into each one, it's not that hard. The trap we all get stuck in is like, imagine if you were a coach, but you only focused on the fundamentals, right? Like you didn't think about all these other things. Like that was the trap that I found myself getting into right out of the gate is, hey, Todd, you got a number to hit, go, right? And so my focus was the forecast, right? The deals. Every one-on-one was the forecast, right? And for everybody who's a leader, if your one-on-ones are all about the forecast, you're doing it wrong, right? Like we've got to think about all of these things. And then the other piece that you said is, you know, talking about sharing with your other leaders, that's where the transparency comes in. That if you've got a strategy and a, a way that you think about things, but nobody else knows what it is, it's hard for those people to run behind you. People are gonna run behind people that they have confidence in, that are also transparent. People that are able to embrace not only what they're great at, but where they have holes, right? They're gonna run behind those people much more than anybody who doesn't have a plan or pretends to be perfect. And so like, that's the element of this thing is that there's a a term that was coined by supermodel Tyra Banks. Media, like mogul, she's brilliant. And she coined the term flossum. And flossum is to embrace your flaws, but know that you're still awesome. And like it turns out that actually sells better. It grows better. It retains better. It creates advocates better. And it leads better when we can embrace our flossomeness. And I just, I love Tyra for that. So anyway. Awesome. I love it. Flossum. 
So you talk about behavioral science. How does that really play into sales leadership, sales? How, how does that help you in your career? Yeah. So I was wait, wondering when you're going to ask that because it's that was what, like I said, triggered me. So, you know, I've always been kind of looking at like, how do people make decisions? And so something happened. My last role, I was the chief revenue officer of a company in Chicago called Power Reviews. You could probably guess from the name. We were in the review space, right? We helped retailers and brands collect and display ratings and reviews on their website. So you've interacted with it. You probably didn't even know it, right? You bought a pair of Crocs. You look at the shoes, you scroll down, there's reviews, right? And we did that with them and a thousand other retailers and brands. But here's the study. We engaged with Northwestern University to look at just consumer behavior when a website's acting as a salesperson. What do consumers do? What triggers decisions? And so it was a you know, simple study, three data points came out of it, two of which changed my life like a nerd. So the first data point that didn't change my life was that we all read reviews today, right? Like if you're buying something you haven't bought before, that's of medium to high consideration, meaning like not like a pack of gum, but something that matters, you read reviews. And I'm, I'm sure you read reviews. Like I haven't found the 2% that don't. Like I'd be really curious to talk to them. But <laughs> the two data points that changed my life. All right, ready? 85% of us, skip the five-star reviews and go right to the negatives, right? You do that. Yep. So I see you nodding. Um, so we read the fours, threes, twos, and ones first. And then the other data point was that on a five-star scale, and this is across all product categories, an average review score between a four, two and a four, five is optimal for purchase conversion, meaning a product that has negative reviews right under it, four, two to four, five, Flossum, will sell better than a product that has nothing but five-star reviews. So I looked at that like a nerd and thought, that's when a website's acting as a salesperson. We're somehow drawn to the negative first. We somehow need the negative to be able to trigger a purchase decision. Why? And does that apply to B2B? And it turns out everything screamed yes, right? As it turns out, transparency sells better than perfection. And so we started trying it and we quickly became Chicago's fastest growing tech company in Chicago, right? Like all of a sudden sales cycles sped up, win rates went up partially because we were qualifying in deals better by leading with not just flaws, but maybe something a competitor does better, some risk area that maybe they're not thinking about. Maybe we're high cost. We lead with that, right? If 85% of us are going to the negative first, it's what our brain wants. It allows us to process all the good, lead with it. And it turned out that magic happened over and over again. And I was like, I have to get these ideas out here. Like not only because it feels good to be transparent and honest, of course, but it sells better. And it's 2022 due to the proliferation of reviews and feedback and everything we do buy and experience today, you can't hide your flaws anyway. So throw them out there, lead them. Don't lose control of your sale by letting your buyer go out and do the research on their own and go, I don't trust her because she presented her solutions as being perfect, right? It builds trust, creates advocates. And like I said, that same type of mindset applies to leadership with your own team. When you embrace your flossiveness and present yourself as, here's my plan. I'm pretty darn good. I ain't perfect. Here's where I need help. Here's where my holes are. You create people that will run behind you, stay and advocate. So there's a good rant for you. <laughs> that is awesome. Wow. And as you were talking, one thing that, that kind of was bubbling through my brain was the things that I always have new salespeople do at companies that I'm working with, or even within my company is a SWOT analysis, right? Yep. Especially when they're brand new. I'm like, you don't, you're not biased yet. You need to do a SWOT analysis because it's really important to understand 
what the other people are doing really good and not so good. And the same thing about your company, what you guys are doing really good and not so good because you're like, like be in front of it. Yeah, we've only been around for three years, but <laughs> right, we've yeah. only done it. Like literally you have to lean into it and don't, it's not coming at you from left and right field. I love that, but you're right. The psychology behind that is true. It's like, I'll read one or two five stars and then I'm going down to the, the one stars, right? And mm -hmm. if something is too perfect, you're like, these are paid reviews. These are real people, right? <laughs> yeah, and that there's so many lessons in B2C that I think are huge opportunities for B2B. Like, you know, Ikea. Like if you've been to an Ikea, Ikea is the number one furniture retailer in the world for 14 straight years. Yet, when you walk in, you need a map. Like, you know you're in for it if you need a map to get through a store. You have to find it. You have to write down the code because you get to go to the warehouse, pull 100-pound boxes on the carts that don't have brakes, which seems like a bit of an oversight. Jam it into the back of your car Tetris style. Drive home with a souvenir injury. Open the box and find 100 parts with no words on the work instructions under the, other than like Svarta or whatever. The, and F-bomb your way through that and then go... Hey, you know what? We should have bought the end tables with that bedroom set. Let's go back. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> but, and like Costco is the same, right? Like I had to go buy some provisions for my stepdaughter's birthday party. And so I was like, Costco's the place to go. You need a subscription to walk in, right? Like you got to pay to even walk in the door. There's almost no brand selection. Like she loves ranch dressing. You better like Hidden Valley. That's all you get. That's it. And then, right. And then you walk up and it's a tank of it, right? It's two thirds <laughs> of a gallon. Like you better love ranch dressing. You throw it on the cart, like on the thing. They don't even bag it. They just throw it in your cart. And then there's somebody at the door checking your receipt to make sure you didn't steal anything. Right. And you keep going back. Their subscription renewal rates like 98%. Why? Because embracing what you give up to be great at your core. That is magic, right? Because it creates expectations. And when you consistently meet those expectations, you create those types of flossom experiences for people where they know exactly what they're getting and what they're not going to get. You go to Ikea for a purpose. If you want your living room feng shui and you need somebody to come assemble it and set it all up, cool. That's not us. Go to Macy's, go to Room and Board, go to Crate and Barrel. That ain't us. You want small quantities and big brand selection at the grocery store? Costco's go like, hey, Go to Kroger, Jewel, Safeway. We're like, that's not us. I think every one of our companies, when we do that and we embrace it, we not only, like I said, all those metric values, but we bring people in pre-qualified and we mm -hmm. stop spending so much time filling pipelines with crap, right? We get much more efficient spending time on the deals we should be working on instead of working on deals that ultimately we're going to lose, but we lose slowly because we pretend to be perfect. So... Mm. And, you know, I think that one of the most important things that you said when you compare Ikea and Costco to their big competitors, one thing that I say often is stop giving people a salad bar, give them a salad, like all of those choices, choices are not good. <laughs> you are the expert, you know what the client needs, yes. give them the product, give them the service. Don't say you can have one, two, three, four, five, because it's too much. And it's like, I go, like you said, I go to Costco, I can get this brand of this and that's it. And sometimes they say this brand didn't work well, so you can't ever find it there again. <laughs> and that's right. okay. Cause I still go back and I try the new thing that they brought in. You know what I mean? And so I think that that is the mindset that we in this B2B complex sales world, we really need to have. Yeah, I mean, the one analogy to your point there is, you know, Toys R Us, like, you know, the greatest store for kids ever goes out of business. 
I think I know why. But, you know, as they were going bankrupt and going out of business, you know, my kids at the time, I think they were like five and seven. So like right in Toys R Us age, they were going out of business. They were having a sale, right? Like going out of business sale. So we see this and my wife's like, let's take the kids, right? The kids hear that with their hawk hearing in the back of the car and they're like, yeah, right? They're like never been more excited in their life to go somewhere. Fast forward to about 25 minutes later, they're both sitting in their car seats with a toy and they're both crying. Why? It's because they go in with these expectations. They're like, toys, yeah, I'm gonna get a toy. But to your point, it's floor to ceiling, wall to wall, toys. Like, I want that, I want that, I want that. And because they have so much choice, it's fatiguing to their brains and they've got fear that the toy that they got is not the best thing that they could get, right? And the only thing that got us out of that store that day was my wife saying, listen, there was three things that you really liked, right? You like that, that, and that. I know there's a hundred other ones, but you have to make a decision between these three and we're going, right? And they're like, ah, I'll take this one and like, like crying on their way out. But that's what salespeople do, right? Where it's just like, you know, imagine a Sherpa at Mount Everest going, it's a big mountain. Where do you want to go? We could climb any way you want. You'd be like, we're all going to die, right? Like we need a Sherpa <laughs> to guide us to the optimal way. We know more than our buyers do. We sell this stuff all day long. They buy our stuff once maybe in their career. We've got to Sherpa them into like your analogy is perfect, right? It's like, if we're not sushi menu, where like, give them the meal. Here's like prefix meal here. Here's what you need. I'm going to be your personal trainer and not somebody who's just sitting here watching you screw yourself. <laughs> right? Exactly. Like literally you are the expert. Yes. You know exactly. your product as better than the buyer does. And so as the expert, they need lettuce, tomato salad dressing, period. No cheese, no croutons, none of the other things, right? right? So something else that you are really passionate about is sales history. Yes. Tell me about, cause this is brand new for me. Sales history is not something, I don't think I go too much past the eighties when I'm reading sales books. So talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, this whole, I've got shelves filled. Um, it's my nerdery. I spend my week, I read from um, books, or like this one here is, 1918, the art and science of selling. Like, I wish you could smell it because it smells like history. <laughs> but um, I just find it absolutely fascinating to look at really the beginnings of what we today call corporate sales, right? Like up through until about 1900, the predominant approach was through manufacturers reps called drummers, right? So you had products to sell. You hired these reps that represented a bunch of products. You gave them samples, sent them off, and then they would send orders. They'd wire orders back. You'd pay them a commission. And then it became corporate, right? And it started to come in like into organizations. They started training. And so it's amazing to me to watch the predominant philosophies that we live by today be birthed back then. I believe that in these books, and literally I have a, something called the Sales History Podcast where I just monologue on a different topic every week. Like where did cold calling begin? When did like sales process and all that stuff. But like, it's amazing to me that I could take paragraphs from the early 1900s, drop them in LinkedIn today. No one would know they were a hundred years old and they would think they're brilliant, right? Like 90% of what I find there and like, gosh, Wesleyan, they, they, these people could write. Like it is amazing to me. But I'll, I'll tell you one other piece. Do we have time for a quick story? Yeah, go right ahead. So mm -hmm. 1916 is a particularly interesting year from sales history. 
In Detroit, in July of 1916, there was something called the World Sales Congress. It was the first of its kind. It was a conference that took place in Detroit and 3,000 salespeople came to it. What's interesting about that is, you know, first conference of its type, 3,000 people. The keynote speaker was then President Woodrow Wilson. Now imagine a sales conference today where the, the keynote speaker is the president of the United States. Like that would be crazy, but even crazier is we were about to get into World War I and this guy's coming and keynoting a sales conference. Why? Because back then sales was trusted, respected, and even admired as a profession mm. to the point where back then colleges were all teaching sales. High schools were teaching sales. There was 11 public Boston high schools teaching sales back then because kids wanted to get into it. It was seen as a way to make great money. But the point is why? Because back then our country had an opportunity, had an opportunity to kind of build an economic power lead, but it relied on salespeople selling the right products to the right companies at the right price at the right time. And when they did that, and they saw the world through kind of the macro lens, selling those right products to right companies at the right time helped them grow, which helped the economy grow because they were hiring, which helped all of us. And mm. so that was the lens, keeping in mind that all sales had to be done face-to-face, eye-to-eye back then. So we had real strong relationships and we were doing right by the economy. And that was the lens by which salespeople sold. Something switched, and I like I go into that in a couple of episodes around like when we started to flip that to where we became self-centered instead of like about our numbers and our metrics and our forecasts instead of outcomes and customer success that kind of changed the perception of the profession. And there still were some slimy salespeople back then, sure. But mm -hmm. we went from being respected, trusted, admired to being at the bottom of Gallup's annual trusted professions list for like eight years in a row now. And I think there's an opportunity to get that back. So as I'm listening to you talk about this history, one thing that it, it pops into my mind in the industry that I work with a lot is manufacturing. And in the manufacturing industry, a lot of the salespeople also in like petrochemical, a lot of the salespeople are a little bit older. And if I think about it, their parents were coming of age in that time. And so pushing their kids into that profession was actually something like, yes, this is a really great career. And then we have this huge gap, right? Mm -hmm. And now we're trying to get the younger generation to come back into sales because I think some of what you're talking about is so true. Like there's that huge gap in when sales was a really respected profession to where it is now. And now we're trying to get back to that. Yeah, and I don't think we can help it. I think it has to happen. You know, like in 2015, Forrester predicted that like 1 million B2B sales jobs would go away by 2020. Well, mm -hmm. the opposite happened, like 3 million added, right? And mm -hmm. I think because it's a resilient profession and part of being resilient is realizing that our buyers don't need us the way they used to. And so being aggressive, being slimy, hiding the truth no longer will make you somebody that they're going to invite in their office. If we look at our role, just like you were talking about earlier, right? To be the guide, to be the Sherpa, to say, hey, listen, my role is to help you make smart decisions. And that smart decision is going to happen as quickly as we can possibly make it happen either with us or for somebody else. And I'm going to help you see if it's somebody else, if it should be as quickly as possible. That is our role, whether we say that or not. If we come from that mindset and go, hey, listen, here's something that you might not love about us. Here's something that a competitor does that if that's going to be important, let's talk about it now. 
hey, listen, our pricing is X. If that's way off from your expectation, let's vet that now, right? Like if you're having a like a six-figure conversation with a four-figure buyer, one of you's in the wrong conversation. You better figure that out right now, right? When we do those types of things and we help the buyer predict, that's when we build that trust and people look at salespeople like an aid versus a necessary evil like they were 20 years ago. Mm, that's good. So when you think about this very, very um, full career that you've had, what is one thing that you are most excited about accomplishing or doing? Gosh, there's a couple. But I honestly, when I wrote the book, my intention is and was to get the ideas out there. I literally thought I would write this book and it would suck. And all my buddies would be like, oh, Todd, good for you. You wrote a book, right? And then I would go get a CRO role again. But I am, uh, it's hard for me to not be super proud of how well this is done, but like really the impact it's having. And like, you know, companies are like, they're buying it for all their new hires, right? I'm like, really? That's insane. But it's great that I, I'm seeing more and more like this rolling stone of leaders that are going, yes, this isn't 1985 anymore. Transparency does sell better than perfection. And because of the proliferation of reviews and feedback today, we have to do it anyway. We better optimize it, right? And so I'm super proud that um, this has kind of taken fire the way it is. And uh, I'm just, I'm happy that I've had the opportunity to do this because being a CRO was a blast. It was stressful as all get out. But for me to be able to be home with my family and then do right by the profession is just super cool to me. And I, I think that it's hard not to land there. That's awesome. And I think that, you know, when we're in the corporate realm, we're really excited about what we do, the lives that we're impacting. But when you write a book, you're touching so many more people than you could ever do in your role as a CRO. So um, I, I think that that is an excellent thing to be proud of. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I can't believe I'm doing it again. So that the yes. next book should be out in a couple months here. So you signed up for it again. So that must, it means it was a fun ride. Exactly. What am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Todd. And if people want to get in contact with you, what is the one best way? My website is just toddcapone.com and it links to everything. There's articles, videos, the podcast links. Uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn too, but uh, toddcapone.com is probably the best place to start soaking in all my nonsense. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. This conversation has been amazing. And you've given us a history lesson in sales, which is definitely a first for the podcast. So I really appreciate you taking your time, sharing your energy and your expertise with us today. Well, you are a delight to talk to, and I'm so happy that you invited me on. So thank you. Thanks so much again. Well, guys, that was another episode of the Science of Selling STEM podcast. And remember, in everything that you do, transform your sales. Until next time. Thank you for joining us today on the Snack-Sized Sales Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and leave us a review. Learn how to continue increasing your bottom line by getting simplified sales strategies delivered to your inbox weekly by going to www.snacksizedsales.com. Trust me, your bank account will grow and love you.